Ben's back. <laughs> I kind of stir up enough trouble and it takes about a year for everything to heal back up. And then dear Jamie's gonna give me another shot at you. Good morning. People ask me from time to time, well, how long have we been a Bible church? <laughs> it's kind of a funny question because it is Scottsdale Bible Church. We've been a Bible church from the very, very, very beginning. We've always been committed to the scriptures as a, a foundation to everything we say, everything we do, everything we believe. That's why all of Pastor Jamie's messages all are based on the Word of God. The more I talk to people, I find that even with all of this, after all these years, people still seem to be a bit fuzzy about the Bible. I, I, I teach a Bible introduction course at a Christian university not too far from here, and, and I have all the incoming freshmen. I have 68 students in one class and 40 in another class, and they all have one thing in common. They come believing that the Bible is somewhat of a uh, storybook, and you put it on your shelf for good luck. Many treat the Bible like a handy-dandy guidebook, helping you how to be a better person. And then when you bring up the fact that the Bible just may be the infallible, authoritative Word of God, they begin to get nervous. And little beads of sweat begin to come from their brow. I, I, I read that 93% of Americans have Bibles but only 12% of them ever read them. 80% of them say that they believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Well, well, that sounds hopeful. But in the same poll, it says that 42% believe the Bible's not totally accurate. As a matter of fact, 48% of that same poll tells us that they do not believe the Bible is a standard of moral right and wrong. Apparently, it's just a good thing to have on your shelf for good luck. Both Georges, George Gallup and George Barna, calls us, quote, a nation of biblical illiterates. Now, that doesn't sound very kind, does it? But what if it's true? Are people, are you, taking the Bible seriously? Most are not, not anymore. And this was not the view of our forefathers. For example, John Quincy Adams wrote, so great is my veneration for the Bible that the earlier my children begin to read it, the more confident I will be in my hope that they'll prove to be citizens of their country. I have for many years made it a practice to read through the Bible once a year. Abraham Lincoln, he said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. Ulysses, as Grant wrote, hold fast to the Bible. 
as the anchor of your liberties. Write his precepts on your hearts and practice them in your lives. To the influence of this book, we owe all progress in true civilization. And to this book, we look as our guide for the future. Theodore Roosevelt, he admonished, if a man is not familiar with the Bible, he has suffered a loss which he had better make all possible haste to correct. Woodrow Wilson, the Bible is the revelation of the meaning of life, the nature of God, the spiritual nature and needs of man. It is the only guide of life which leads the spirit in the way of peace and salvation. See, for our forefathers, the founders of this nation, the Bible was pretty important to them. But apparently not to uh, men like my college professor who drilled in our head this statement. We had to memorize it. The Bible evolved as a result of literary pursuit, which contains errors, contradictions, moral perversions, and historical blunders. It has been deified by men as the word of God and thrusted into a position of reverence in which it was never intended. Now my question is, who's got it right? Are we really illiterate of the most important book that's ever been written? Or should we take another look at how serious we ought to take this book or ought we to leave it on the shelf for good luck. So, what is the Bible? We talk about the Bible. What is the Bible? When I read the Bible, I, I never find any statements of apology. Do you notice you never read anything like, well, this may sound a little ridiculous. <laughs> or, you might find this a little hard to swallow. Like I've said many times, Moses did not offer the 10 suggestions. We have 3,800 statements in the Hebrew canon alone that claims that this book is actually the words of God. Then I find this text in the last will and testament of the apostle Paul. The last book he would write before his head would be severed from his body. He's not blowing smoke. And that's what he says in 2 Timothy 3.16. Pontegrafe, all scripture is inspired by God. Those three words, one Greek word, theonoustos, theos, God, noustos, breathe. All scripture is God breathe and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training. So every man, every woman of God will be adequately, adequately equipped for every good work. I mean, it's, it's the apostle Paul. I mean, Paul's the one who wrote 13 of these books. And he even explained how this whole thing works. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but in verse 9, he says, but just as it is written, things which eye has not been, has not seen and the ear has not heard, and which have not entered into the heart of man all that God's prepared for those who love him. Those things that are in the mind of God that we don't know about. How do you get from there to here so we can have access to the very thoughts of God himself? Paul explains how it happened. Verse 10, for to us, we apostles, we prophets, 
For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? You all have your own quiet thoughts. And there's things you're thinking about that we won't know unless you tell us. You reveal them. So it is, he says, with God, God's very thoughts within his own cosmic mind. He says the only one who knows them is his spirit, the spirit of God. But look what the spirit of God did with them. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, who knows the very thoughts of our Heavenly Father. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Even Peter, who wrote two of the books. Peter was a fisherman. He says it was like being on a, on a, on a boat that we had lost control and were being just driven by the waves. He says, so it is. No scripture is an act of human will, but that the Holy Spirit, with the thoughts of God himself, bore these apostles bore these prophets along so that we would have access to the very thoughts of God. This was not some induced coma, but God used the man's whole life, his experiences, emotions, his vocabulary, to breathe the truth of his mind into the minds of the apostles and the prophets who wrote them down for us. I mean, think about it. Psalm 33 if God can breathe into existence from his thoughts of all creation, of the universe, if God can breathe from his thoughts into reality, the universe itself, read Psalm 33. It explains it. Well, then cannot God also breathe his thoughts into the hearts of men and thus into the scriptures themselves? That's how this happened. Well, then from where did it come? We find many ancient sacred books written in one life by one man, but not so with the Bible. The Bible was written over 1,600 years, 60 generations of people, over 40 different authors. Some were kings, some were peasants, some philosophers, some fishermen, some poets, some were statesmen, some scholars. And even one was a fig picker. And some of it was written in the wilderness. Some of it was written in prisons. Some of it was written in dungeons and some in palaces and some while they were traveling. The Bible was written on three different continents. Some of it in Asia, some of it in Africa, some of it in Europe. And it was composed from three different languages. Some of it Hebrew, some of it Aramaic, some of it Greek. And yet we have 66 separate books spanning 60 generations of history. And we've got such harmony as Paradise Lost in the book of Genesis and Paradise Regained in the last two chapters of Revelation. History has tried to destroy this book. But it makes sense to me that if this is the word of God, 
and we have access to the very thoughts and desires and will of our Creator, our Heavenly Father, then if there are indeed, like Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but harassing forces of darkness. If there indeed is forces of darkness, a Lucifer, a devil, would he not want to destroy access, our access to the very thoughts and the will and desires of our creator? Absolutely. So is there any evidence of that? Absolutely throughout history. For example, Voltaire, the French political philosopher of the 18th century, attempted to eradicate the Bible. He said, and I quote, 50 years from now, the world will hear no more of the Bible. And yet, does God have a sense of humor? Within 50 years of Voltaire's death, the Geneva Bible Society was using his press to print, you want to finish the sentence. Bibles. When Thomas Paine wrote The Age of Reason over 200 years ago, he believed that his attack on the Bible would destroy it. And he boasted this, and I quote, when I get through, there will not be five Bibles left in America. I got more than five at home. The Roman emperors, Nero, Trajan, Decius, Diocletian, they all tried with all the world's forces to destroy this book. For example, in 8303, Diocletian issued an edict to destroy Christians and their sacred book. He killed so many Christians, burned so many Bibles, that he actually erected a column with this inscription in Latin, extincto nomine Christianorum, which is translated, the name of Christians has been extinguished. But the irony of the whole thing is 25 years later, the next Roman emperor was named Constantine, and he commissioned Eusebius to prepare 50 copies at the expense of the government. Yeah, history's tried to destroy this book. You know, just kind of like a rebel to the wrong, that alone makes me want to master this book, since everybody's trying to destroy it. What are they trying to hide? But why believe it? Why believe the Bible? Let me give you two reasons. One's logical, one's more personal. Logical. What evidence is there? Is this book a book, if this book is a book of truth, then that sh truth should be evident for all times and for all things. The Bible's not a science book, but it does make observations about our universe and the world, and it can be tested by Science. Dr. James Dwight Dana, past professor at Yale University, was addressing a graduation class, and these were his words, quote, young men, as you face scientific problems, remember that I, an old man who has known only science all his life, say to you that there is nothing truer in all the universe than the scientific statements in the word of God. See, we can compare statements of the Bible with other ancient books written during the same time. For example, in the, uh, in the Hindu Vedas, they tell us that the moon is 50,000 leagues higher than the sun, and that the moon shines by its own light. 
and at night is caused by the sun setting behind a huge mountain. And that the world is flat and it rests on the heads of countless elephants, which in shaking creates earthquakes. And yet, in the most ancient book that we have in the Bible, dated around the same time as the Vedas, you got a statement like, for example, in Job 26, verse 7. And this is a statement. Again, this isn't a science book, and yet, here's what it says. It's talking about the greatness of God. The departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is shield before him, and Abaddon has no covering. God stretches out the north over empty space, and he hangs the earth on nothing. How does Job get off the planet and see that? You see, the ancient Greeks and the Romans believed the earth was held in place by poles or the back of Atlas. Copernicus did not discover that the earth was actually posed in space, hanging on nothing until 3,000 years after Job made that statement. In the 8th century BC, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, he's describing how God views the earth. And he's very careful to use a Hebrew word referring to the curve, the curvature of the earth. While others at that time and for hundreds of years later still believed that the globe was flat. Archaeology. If this is true, then it's true for all things. William F. Albright, a well-known archaeologist, said this, and I quote, The excessive skepticism shown towards the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries, certain phases of which still appear periodically, have been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of the innumerable details and has brought increased recognition of the value of the Bible as the source of history. Prophetic statements. Who knows the future? Who, who has the future in his hand and knows the details of the future? Prophetic statements have, have, have hundreds of years before the historical event has been accurate in detail. For example, in the sixth century BC, Ezekiel, spoke of the future destruction of a city called Tyre. At that time, Tyre was at its high point. It was just off there in the Mediterranean Sea, off basically Ephesus, off the coast there. And because it was an island and it had a portion on the earth, that basically it was a rich, wealthy seaport at the time. But because of the perversion, their sin, God through Ezekiel says, it will so be destroyed and to the details of will be bears a rock, fishermen will dry their nets upon it, and it will never be rebuilt. Well, 260 years later, after Isaiah made that proclamation, Alexander the Great later in his campaign against the Persians fulfilled every detail of that prophecy. And if you get on a ship and go to the Mediterranean, they will show you a bare rock. You'll see some fishing boats harbored around it, drying their nets, and it has never, never been rebuilt to this day. In Mark 13 in the New Testament, 
people, the Jews, were so proud of their temple. 40 years, Herod the Great had built this beautiful temple, trying to make it as beautiful as was the one that Solomon built years before. And Jesus speaks of the destruction of this temple. This was the very heartbeat of Judaism, the very heartbeat of Israel at the time. And Jesus said, this temple will be destroyed and not one stone upon a stone will be left. That's an impossible thing to say. That's why they accused Jesus of speaking against the temple. Who would speak against the temple? But 37 years later, Rome would come down and that temple would be burned, made out of limestone. Limestone burns. And it was destroyed and not one rock of the foundation was left upon another rock. Dr. Arthur Custance tells us, and he's an archaeologist, that the fire burned so hot at that temple that the gold and the silver within the temple melted and ran down the cracks of the foundational stones so that for the next 25 years, every stone was pried up in search for the silver and gold. And that's why you go to the Temple Mount today. I've been there 10 times. You will not find one stone of foundation to that temple. You'll see the walls that surrounded the temple court, but you won't see one stone of that temple. There's other examples, but let me give you my personal one. The Bible's changed my life. Amen. Bible's just changed my life. I'm 71, and that sucks. But I will tell you, for my whole life, I have believed that this is the word of God, but I have made mistakes. I have had blunders in my life. I've done hurtful things. But all the blunders, all the mistakes, all the things I've done that's created pain and misery for myself and others, they all have one thing in common. I was either ignorant of, indifferent to, or rebellious against something in this book, the Bible. The Bible makes sense for me, out of everything. The Bible makes sense about a creator and why, all right, amino acids, we evolved. Okay, I don't see how that works because I don't understand. Every human being has this deep sense of right and wrong, justice. I don't understand how that evolves out of amino acids. But I do know this. I've been with people who were alive. And as a pastor, I've been with them when they died. And something all of a sudden leaves. And that which was animated, the organs were working, the body was working. And for some reason, all of a sudden, it's no longer animated. It's like the breath left it. And at that point, I realize this book makes sense out of God, out of life, out of death, out of me out of my world around me. People getting all upset at people being angry and people doing horrible things and media lying to us. And why are you surprised? The Bible makes sense out of all of it. If anything else, we are indeed prepared to observe it and know how to respond to it. This book has put my life under the blessing of God. There is a verse in James chapter 1, 
James says this in verse 19. Now this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear. Hear what? Slow to speak. Speak what? Slow to get angry. Angry at what? Therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word of God implanted, which is able to save your souls. There's things I read in this book I need to be hearing. There's things I read in this book I better stop sharing my opinions and speaking against it. And there's things in this book that if I believe my culture, I don't like. So, but be slow to get angry. Slow to speak against. Be quick to hear when the word of God is implanted. Prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. He says, for once he's looked at himself in the mirror and he's gone away, he merely has forgotten what kind of person he really was. But the one who looks intently in the perfect law, and he calls this book, the Bible, the law of liberty. What does it mean, the law of liberty? Liberty means freedom. How does this book give freedom? Freedom from what, Jesus said. You abide in my word, my words, my commands, the word of God, and you will know the truth, and the truth will, what's the rest of it? Set you free. Free from what? Free from fear. Fearing what? That I'm going to mess up my life. That I'm going to end up a big zero and a big loser. And that basically I'm going to make enough blunders and mistakes and destroy enough relationships around me. I'll basically die alone and become more of a weapon in other people's lives than any kind of a blessing. That's what we fear. That my life may end up worthless. But I don't have to fear that. For those truths sets me free from fear. Because if I indeed abide by it, not having been kind of forgetful here, but an effectual doer, this man, this woman, shall be blessed in whatever they do. I have been living, my life is under the blessing of God. Does it mean I'm better than you? Oh, not at all. It means I never make mistakes? Oh, yes, I do. Because there's times I'm still ignorant of, indifferent towards, rebellious against, but I tell you, when I am surrendered that this is the infallible, authoritative word of God, everything in my life is worked together for good because I love God and I'm called according to his purpose. And that's the promise of Romans 8, 28. Well, then how does this work? I mean, really, if, if I read the Bible, if I'm studying the Bible, Second uh, Timothy 2.15, study the show thyself a workman who need not be ashamed of himself, rightly dividing the word of truth. How does that work? How does God's thoughts revealed in this book somehow change my life? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us exactly how it happens. If you haven't heard anything, listen carefully to these closing 7, 10 minutes. Hebrews 4.12 and 13. For the word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is piercing, piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of your heart. 
And there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom, Daryl, you have to do. What's he talking about? The written word, he says, is quickened. It's alive. The Bible is as live because the God who wrote it is alive and his life somehow mysteriously flows through this book. So God is very much alive. His life outflows through this book. This is not a dead book. And it says, as his life flows through this book, it's piercing, penetrating to the inner me, to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Joints are simply bones. The marrow is in your bones. It's the marrow that gives health and animates your bones. In the same way, it is your, the spirit that is in your soul that animates your soul. Now, when the word psuche, soul, is used with the same word pneuma, spirit and soul, they're talking about two different things. And as marrow animates bones, so the spirit animates your soul. And your soul in this context is simply that part of you that gives you your desires. The Jews would call it your heart. It's your thoughts. It's your attitude. It's your, your volition what you decide to choose. Animals have a soul in that context. They have emotions. They have thoughts. They have volition. But the spirit, the spirit basically animates, renews, regenerates your soul, creates those thoughts, that attitude, those decisions, and those desires. And what is the spirit? Well, that goes back to the very beginning of Genesis 2, 7. And God took a hundred pounds of clay and he breathed into the dirt and it became a living nephesh, a living soul. His breath, his spirit came within something inanimate and made it alive. The soul, that is the desires, the thoughts, the volition were animated, made alive because of the very breath the Spirit of God, that's where we were born spiritually dead. We have emotions. We, we can function with will. But why do we make so many mistakes? Why are we in the dark? It's because we do not have the breath, the Spirit of God himself within us, animating our soul and thus renewing us, regenerating us, changing us. What do you think Paul means in Romans eight sixteen when he says, don't you know? It's the Spirit of God in you that bears witness with your spirit, your soul, to remind you you're a child of God. Not all thoughts are your own. If you think all thoughts are your own, you're a puppet, and you can be controlled by any spirit that can plant thoughts. And John 13, verse two says, it was Satan himself who implanted the thought into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. That's how deceptive a human being could be. Not all thoughts are your own. But those thoughts that are produced by the Spirit of God. So what happens? When the Spirit of God hears his word, he takes his word, the thoughts of the Heavenly Father, and he pierces them right through your soul to your spirit. 
And the Holy Spirit then takes your spirit and continues to renew it, make it alive, generate it, because your spirit is that part of you that connects you to your creator, that connects you to God. And so as the word of God, the Holy Spirit must sometimes feel like he's sitting there just twiddling his thumbs. Because the only thing I'm hearing is social media or opinions of this or the opinions of my friends or my own dogmatism about this or that. And he's waiting for the word of God, which is alive, the life of God, to be spoken, to be read, to be heard by my soul so that then he can engage and pierce it to my spirit. And I may not even be aware, but all of a sudden, my attitude's changing. The thoughts coming to my mind are changing. The desires that I have to do with my life every day begin to change. I continue to be regenerated, continue to be renewed. I continue to be changed. It's not by the whims of the culture. Because the Holy Spirit only promises to use the living word of God. That's why you come to church. That's why you read. That's why any opportunity you have to hear the living word of God, you get there, you listen. Because as your soul hears it, Spirit of God goes, whoa, someone's using my word. And the Holy Spirit penetrates right through your soul to your spirit. And your spirit becomes more alive, more connected to your heavenly father. So you know more of his desires. You have a deeper desire to honor him as your father. This is why Psalm 119 says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against thee. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I meditate on thy precepts and regard thy ways. I will delight in thy statutes. I will not forget thy words. So you might say, well, I believe all that. Well, then the question I leave you or maybe just a loving admonishment then treat it the way you believe it. This is why I've given my life to the teaching of the word of God. This is why I will die. I will always be a student of the scriptures. This is why I'm at Phoenix Seminary. And by the way, thank you for those of you who remember Phoenix Seminary. Because if you were in trouble with the law, would you want to go to a lawyer who has mastered the law? If you were having physical problems, wouldn't you want to go to a doctor who's mastered medicine? Well, somebody's struggling with their soul. Wouldn't you want to go to somebody who's mastered the word? And that's why Phoenix Seminary. And if you don't support the school, I encourage you to do so. I even got a mask. There it is. Support Phoenix Seminary. <laughs> but all that to say this. How long have you been a Bible church? We've always been a Bible church. How long are we going to be a Bible church? We will always be a Bible church because it's the word of God that will change your life. And God bless you. Father, thank you so much. And we don't have to be ashamed, even though the world continues to mock it, discredit it. But Father, those who are most critical of the Bible are the most ignorant of it. Lord, may we become students 
When Pastor Jamie or anybody in this pulpit teaches the word of God, may we listen. May we let our soul listen so the spirit of God within us can penetrate to our spirit and change us from deep within us so that, Lord, we're changed. We think differently. This next week, we're going to have different desires that we weren't going to have for no other reason than the spirit of God was given the words of God, the very thoughts of the Father. So much has gone into this book. So many have tried to destroy this book. Father, may this be the, indeed the treasure that Jesus Christ has given us. May we indeed study to show thyself workmen who need not be ashamed of ourselves, rightly dividing the word of truth. <laughs>